0: Welcome to the Rocks Pages podcast. This is Mark Pringle in the room with my colleague Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Mark. And our very special guest today is James Richard Boone, <laughs> according to his Wikipedia. Richard <laughs> Boone. Hello, Richard. Hello, everybody. <laughs> For those who don't know, Richard is a key person in the development of Manchester music in the late 70s through through the 80s. manager of the Buzzcocks independent record production pioneer. Is it right that the Buzzcocks' first single EP Spiral Scratch is the very first DIY indie release before Rough Trade released anything?
1: Well it's taken that mantle. I mean they've always been they've always been small independent labels but I think with the Spiral Scratch EP it was because it was the first that came out of Oh, God,
0: punk <laughs> rock. Right, yes. Um,
1: and it was done by the band.
0: Yeah, I mean, because later on, people like Scritti Purity sort of fo- followed yeah. this. this... Well,
1: the, well, yes, I mean, the, the, I would... The, the immediate legacy would be Desperate Bicycles. Right. Who specifically formed in order to make a, <laughs> a record. So it goes, and then kind of Scritti.
0: Right. Let's go back. I mean, how did you first get involved in music?
1: I blame Radio Luxembourg. Yeah, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I used to fall asleep listening to this really bad signal on the radio, fading in and out. I just, I just liked it.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, primary school, you were either a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan. Yeah, and yeah. Then, if you were a Beatles fan, it was which Beatle? Uh, <laughs> which were
0: you? Which were you? Oh, were you? Uh,
1: John. So right. you're a Beatles
2: fan. And you're a John fan. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: And then, I don't know, at secondary school I fell in with some mates and we just used to move around from one another's houses with instruments and make st- things like you know, my pal Howard yes. Trafford, who became Howard DeVoto, yep. Richard Swales, who became Richard famous of Poison Girls. Really? Wow. And we just used to fool around and record ourselves.
0: What did you play?
1: I didn't. I mumbled. <laughs> you
0: mumbled.
1: <laughs> I mumbled.
0: Because, of, of course, um, if we fast forward a bit, you were at school, with, as I said, with, with Howard Trafford, Howard yeah. Devoto, and the pair of you went to see the Sex Pistols play in High Wycombe? Is that That's
1: right? right. I blame Neil Spencer. And he <laughs> yes. reviewing the enemy. don't look over your shoulder, but the Sex Pistols are coming. Right. Which mentioned... What the, one of the attractions apart from Johnny saying we're not into music we're into chaos yes. it's always attractive they covered the stooges yes and that was interesting
0: yeah i i they played my art school in 75 november mm-hmm. 75 and sort of empty room
1: no there were 35000 people there
0: <laughs> <laughs> well with Albert, she was there <laughs> 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 and she went on to perform yes
1: so we went howard and Peter who I, they were at college in Bolton and I'd met Peter before so they came down I was an art student at Reading right and they came down They stayed with me and we went up to Kings Road to sex yes met Malcolm yeah who was kind of intrigued that people had travelled yes And he said, well, it's High Wycombe tonight and Welling Garden City tomorrow, so come along.
0: Fantastic.
1: And they were just opening for... I can't remember who they were opening for, but it was very dramatic. Sure. Uh, And there was one moment when Johnny... It was a completely indifferent audience, of course. There were these lads sat just with with their backs to the stage, Mm -hmm. kind of making Mm -hmm. mocking gestures to their mates... While the Pistols played, actually, no fun. And Johnny ran along the front of the stage, tousled their hair, at which point all their mates from the back ran to the stage, picked John up, threw him on the floor, and there was a big scrap. It was like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Wow. <laughs> and the band kept playing. <laughs> and Johnny craw- kind of crawled out, and got back on stage, and said, That really was no fun. <laughs> and it was just spectacular and inspiring.
0: Fantastic.
3: No fun! This is no fun! No fun! It is no fun at all!
1: No
0: fun! And so this gave you the idea of booking the Pistols playing match Manchester the lesser Well,
1: I. Well, that, that, you know, Howard and Peter scuppered back to Bolton full of ideas. and Right. I went back to Reading and. Put the pistols on in my art studio, Did you? painting studio. Yeah. Wow. In April seventy six, that was before Manchester.
3: Yeah, uh-huh.
0: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Howard organized the Lesser Free Trade Hall. Mm-hmm. The first one I didn't see. The first one I was still making marks on paper, and, <laughs> but I moved to Manchester between the first and the second, so I saw the second. Right. And yeah, fifty thousand people. I think. Yeah, absolutely,
0: yeah. <laughs> and anyone who ever picked up an instrument subsequently in Manchester claims to have been at.
1: Yes, the, the, they, the even if they perhaps didn't. you know. Yes, <laughs> well, some people were. But I love
0: quite, the idea of you putting on putting them on in your your studio art school
2: again twenty
1: five thousand people. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to do something. Yeah, I, yeah. I just wanted to do something. It's,
0: I think people forget, well, maybe they don't, but... Um, I mean,
1: there weren't very many people at that at all. No, but I, John, John was on good form. Right. We've seen your paintings. <laughs> what a waste <laughs> of taxpayers' money. But the trouble was, both there and at the Manchester... You know, John liked to wind up an audience. Yeah, yeah. But my pals and the audience in Manchester loved them. It was, yeah, yeah, you could, you could.
0: hard to wind them
2: up.
1: It was hard to wind them up. Yeah. It was really kind of frustrating that they were appreciated.
0: It's, it's, I just, I think it's just, just fantastic. So now, as of this the Buzzcocks emerge. What what was that sort of process?
2: Can we clarify also is it
1: Buzzcocks or the Buzzcocks? No, mm, it's no definite article. No definite article. See, Buzz- that's that's what <laughs> I thought. So, th- th-
0: thanks. Yeah, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no definite um, article. Yeah. So, so after but, this, but then you had
2: like you know you know never mind but anyway, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, any, so so after this Buzzcocks um, emerge, What was that sort of process?
1: Uh, well that was Howard and Peter trying to <laughs> trying to put a band together. At the first Manchester Pistols date, Steve Diggle had arranged to meet someone. He was playing bass at the time. He arranged to meet outside the Free Trade Hall. He hadn't arranged to meet Howard or Peter, but McLaren came out and said, what are you doing hanging around the band on in a minute? And he said, oh, I was supposed to meet someone. I'm a bass player. He said, oh, they're inside. (laughs) (laughs) So he took them... So uh, It was a mis- case of mistaken identity. John Mar just uh, answered an ad, Howard, Howard and Peter put an ad in on the notice board in Virgin Records right. in Lever Street.
0: Bass player wanted, sort of. That's, yeah. And no time wasters. Dr- <laughs> and drummers, yeah, that kind of thing.
1: <laughs> and you used to rehearse in Howard's bedroom and then in a uh, youth club belonging to St Boniface's in Salford. Mm-hmm. And then it was finding places to play.
0: Right. Which is not easy.
1: No. There was nothing really happening in Manchester. Mm. I mean there was Dougie James's Soul Train, like who was in residence at some nightclub. Sure. And um, bits of Alberto Elos paranois yeah. knocking about. But there was nothing really happening. The yeah.
2: sense that one gets when one reads interviews is that People that wanted to go and do something felt they had to go and do something in London rather than being able to do it in Manchester. Maybe until until that point.
1: Well, possibly, but I think it was very. It felt important. It was yeah. to make Manchester Absolutely. work. Yeah, that's that's yeah. what I'm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and it was, you just had to find. There was a venue called Electric Circus. Yes. which is kind of dead end hippie. So where you you find a quiet night like a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. They were happy to, they were actually more than happy <laughs> to get people in and at the bar. And then we put Boscox with Chelsea yeah. there. And we got hired the Holdsworth Hall, so Boscox and Eater. Yeah. But I mean, then it took, so the people at the Electric Circus kind of got, got the message. Right. That if they really wanted to stay in business, they had to embrace this new music, yeah, yeah. which I don't think they liked. What was
0: Manchester <laughs> like at the time? Because you, you're not from Mancunian, are you? You're, you're I'm from tri- Leeds. Yeah.
1: What was it like?
0: Because God's Own Policeman was James Anderson. Oh,
1: God. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it was just, you know, post-industrial. Yeah. And lots of dead spaces. Yeah. Which are now, of course, it's, just, it's ridiculously expensive yeah. uh, loft-style apartments.
3: <laughs>
1: in, right in the centre of town. Yes,
0: yeah, because I'm cause I remember the first visiting there, which would probably be about eighty, eighty two, eighty three, and then I was there a few years ago. Cause our colleague Barney Hoskins mm. and myself were at a conference, and just the transformation of Manchester just it was, it was just extraordinary. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a complete different place now, isn't it? So, where did the idea of recording and releasing yourselves?
1: The first Buzzcocks well, well, EP. We just wanted a souvenir. Yeah, <laughs> really, just wanted a souvenir. There was, there was a sense that you see, <clears throat> some people will argue that punk died with the Anarchy tour. Yes, whereas some people will argue that that's where it really went nationwide. But it also became a caricature and yeah, uh, and there was we had a sense of time running out. And we just wanted to you know literally make a record. Yeah, just to mark. You know, the passage of a small group of people over a short period of time. And we got some help from John Webster, who was a manager at the Virgin store. Mm-hmm. Back in the days when record, Virgin store managers had autonomy right. over purchasing. Yep. And he said, he you take, take some records, he'd persuade his mates around the north... To take some, so looked at We just did a thousand. Mm-hmm. And then I was lucky enough to have a landline. Yes. He's back in, you know, back in uh, 76, 77, they weren't always that common. And the funkies kept ringing and we had to keep repressing. Wow. Uh, yeah. And it was all just out of one room in a shared house in Salford. And yeah, it uh, just became <laughs> a thing.
0: Yes, I mean one oh, of no, them, that was because yeah, the
1: distribution was really kind of independent. Distribution was very patchy. Yeah, at yeah, the time.
0: Yeah, I mean the cartel hadn't been set up.
1: No, had no, it. No, um, no. The first there article
0: were... we're going to talk about briefly is Paul Morley's Buzzcock's teen Rebels scores two hundred and fifty pounds from the dad. Okay. Enemy, 5th February 77, so this is exactly when it's released. Isn't yep. it? It was, um, Paul says, Boredom is one of the four tracks on an EP, Spiral Scratch, which is released as a new hormones product at the end of this month. A £250 loan from Pete Shell's dad financed a platter. The other tracks are Time's Up, Breakdown and Friends of Mine. Now it's time to introduce Talk's manager, genial Richard Boone, a shrewd observer <laughs> of the pop scene who, who stumbled on the group at that first gig. A self-confessed, which is clearly not entirely true, a self-confessed fan, he describes the motive for his dutiful ringing, writing and worrying as being just to get the group on stage. He reckons the EP consolidates a certain amount of the band's initial territory, what Boone calls the overdrive raunch meets pop melody. (laughs) <laughs> certainly it's great to get some of the early tunes on disc before any new development knocks them irrevocably ancient. And the rough mix I've heard suggests that fans who feared a smooth production job, turbulence sucking, <laughs> need worry no more. It's active and assorted. Of course, um, uh, produced by Martin Hannett, yep. who went on to become something of legend. Is that his, Was that his first production job, his recording he, job?
1: He'd done something for some... He had done something for some theatre group right at Riverside Studios Uh uh-huh so he was the closest thing to a producer (laughs) that that we knew
0: yeah how did you know him I mean was he just part
1: of your circle yeah I used to do the music listings for kind of what's on magazine called New Manchester Review right which was fortnightly very thin there wasn't much Mm -hmm. going on (laughs) and he had a kind of little booking agency in the room next door right so it was just hanging around, yeah. really. Yeah. I you know, There was a bit of research. We'd worked out how much at studio time we could use, what it would cost. Right. It was actually pressed by phonogram. Realised these pressing plants need to keep their machines yes. running, so they're quite happy to take small jobs. Sure, sure. Um, so we had a budget £500, half of it from Pete's dad, mm-hmm. who had to go to the bank and then two friends of mine who were lucky enough to have jobs in 1976. <laughs> put, put up the rest between them.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, the thing is that if that is effectively his first attempt at recording a ro- rock and roll, it's really good. I mean, I think still it sounds remarkably good today. I've well, been listening to it
2: for the last couple of days. Yeah. And it still really stands up and it still has mm. a lot of energy and a lot of power and it just it's, yeah. it's also it's just great fun to listen to. Yeah. Boredom. I mean what you know it's funny. It's, it's just, totally just, funny. just, you know, just it's extraordinary entertaining I mean, and good and
0: I'm sharp. Mean, you know the same But also, I mean, the band are already developing have have already developed a sort of a sound which was to sort of continue i mean mm. a, H- Howard left pretty quickly, didn't he
1: yes, yes, he well, he also went <laughs> went back to finish his college course right, and then later met John McGill. yeah. there was a very f- celebrated party. <laughs> Malcolm Garrett. In our house in Salford, there was Linda Sterling, right. who was at the Howard's partner at the time. She was at Manchester Poly, and she said, oh, one of my colleagues, Malcolm Garrett, is having a party. He lives Bob's Cowley Shore's wet fish shop on the Oxford Rose. So we all went, and John McGee was there and was introduced by Malcolm to Howard. He said, John can play everything that Tom Verlaine can. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So they started working together and built uh, built magazine. Were
0: you involved with magazine at all in any in any sort of capacity? No. 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 Um, what was interesting is that the, you know the lead singer leaves Buzzcocks and Pete Shelley moves forward to do it. It's a very tough thing for anyone to do. For, you know that that mm-hmm. the, you know if someone central as a lead singer leaves, often that's the end end of a band. Yeah. And yet they very rapidly, uh, well, first of all, it's interesting that I think that they that sonically they aren't that dissimilar. That Shelley sort of obviously picked up some mm. of Howard's sort of vocal gestures, mm. but evolved this really fabulous songwriting style, which is like, you know, inverted commas, notionally punk, but actually is all kinds of other stuff than, yep. than, than, than punk rock. I mean, how did that evolve? Did you...
1: I never... I, I don't know, I've never really witnessed Peter's writing process. Right. But he would just come... He'd come up with riffs and they'd work them out, yeah. work through them in rehearsal. Yeah. Some of the early material... In fact, goes back to... He had a little band in Bolton. Right. called Jets of Air. Uh-huh. Which some of, some of the songs he already had from then.
2: Okay, yeah. It's interesting that there's this sort of... Of course, he's all born out of punk, but Howard was really interested in being kind of quite intellectual. I mean, I'm reading, I think it's in Paul Morley's introduction to Kevin Cummins' great book of Manchester photographs, mm. that Howard, his great idol was like E.E. E. Cummings, and he, he sort of saw himself as like intelligent, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of, that's a, an interesting contrast to what one maybe thinks about when one thinks about punk looking back. Yeah.
0: There was always that element of punk because a lot of punk came out of art schools. I yes. Mean, you know, was, um, uh, uh, and so there's a, certain, there's a certain amount of bullshit sort of surrounding the mythology of punk as, mm. as kind of this gritty working class sort of explosion. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, later on, you could say with sort of the Oi bands, <laughs> that's some yeah. truth mm-hmm. some grim truth. And we're also running Irina Stryce's Louder Than War article on Howard yeah. and Steve. And spiral scratch from 2022, and the audio interview, uh, uh, Pete Shelley interviewed by Mark tracker from 2007. Pete, of course, died quite quite recently. It's very 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 sad. I mean, mm. when he reached our age, this sort of happens all too often. <laughs> um, when did you? I mean, you carried on with New Hormones as a label, releasing like Ludus and so on, yeah, so forth. So forth. Were you still managing Buzzcocks? whilst running the label, or did you stop managing Balscox?
1: No, I was doing both.
0: That must have been pretty hard work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, but it was, we got B- Balscox in a position where they signed to United Artists right. when Andrew Lauder was yes a- A&R. Shortly before he left, United Artists (laughs) to start Radar Records, but he was always very helpful even through that period. He's very interesting because he always, even when
0: he's on at a major label, he treated it like an independent sort of concern and also showed great loyalty to artists in in a way which these days has completely evaporated. Yeah, he went to Radar, and then that became almost like a reissue sort of concern and so on and so forth. (laughs) So after he left, what, what was the relationship with United Artists like after
1: he'd gone well <laughs> well he was replaced by Tim Chaxfield who we got on with okay mm-hmm. but there seemed to, there was there were problems in the background that we weren't aware of with United Artists was had some kind of manufacturing distribution arrangement with EMI yeah and in the States Capital
0: yeah
1: were taking over Liberty which was the American equivalent of UA and Gradually, things didn't quite. Things weren't working. Right. The international department was terrible, <laughs> frankly. And there was a lack of lack of support. And by the time that EMI took over completely, mm-hmm. there was really no relationship. But the, right. there were all these kind of Essex boys with bling who were just interested in the next John Lennon album, and yeah. not, that's all. Yeah. And I had a meeting. Of, <laughs> About the Boscott's third album, when this guy was just playing Lennon demos that had just come in, because of course the whole company's history hinged on right on it. Um, they were just not interested. It was eventually like they were just a file in a filing cabinet in yeah. a r- dusty room that was locked and no one knew where the key was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. And that's when Pete went solo.
0: So is this is when you left Manchester, came to Rough Trade. Would that be sort of?
1: Well, yeah, shortly after. It, it, well, I moved in '83. Jeff Travis thought he was going away for three months right. to America, and would I would I be up for sitting in his office and rejecting demo takes <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a nice way? And my wife was in London already. Right, we'd been having. It's kind of every other weekend on the train relationship between Manchester and London. So she, it was an opportunity to move and New Hormones was just ticking over. It wasn't really doing anything. Uh For instance, this group called The Smiths came to (laughs) my little office one day (laughs) with a cassette of handing glove. Right. Which was lovely. But I could see... I, this was way beyond anything I could deal with. So uh-huh. I got in touch with Simon Edwards at Rough Trade Distribution and said, you should really uh, talk to these people. They're thinking about doing it themselves, but they probably need an M&D relationship with someone like Rough Trade. Yeah. And then Johnny, went, Johnny met Simon he came down to meet Simon, and Simon listened and thought, no, 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 this is more than just someone doing it on their own. He, you've got to talk to Jeff. Jeff was about to leave the building. Johnny tackled him and said, sit down and listen to this. Wow. <laughs> and uh, the rest was... The rest is history.
0: That, 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 it's fantastic. I mean, one could safely describe you as Mr. Manchester music. I mean, from Buzzcocks to the Smiths is a pretty, pretty good go. Well,
1: Stephen, we always... I mean, Stephen was always around. And yeah. He used he used to review Record Mirror. Yeah, he... Or he, he was constantly writing letters that were being published in the... Music music, press, especially about the New York Dolls. Yes, indeed. So we were all expecting, you know, everybody... I mean, the music scene in Manchester was just like a little village inside Mm. the city. Yeah. Everybody knew one another. Uh, And he had... Morrissey had done something with the nosebleeds. Right. Which was Vinnie Riley and some other people. But the relationship didn't work out. Right they didn't like the subject of his songs. <laughs> that's what he told me. So we, we, we knew it was inevitable that he would do something. I mean, this is a
0: very good good opportunity to talk about the audio that's go, go, going in this week, which is Martin Aston's interview with Morrissey, who was still at Smith at that point, November 86. Mm. Um, what isn't known is that actually the band is already, I think, starting to fracture. Um, it's pretty interesting, I mean, he the first bit of it is, is, kind of, is a meta interview it's a, about being interviewed he talks at some length about his relationship with interviewers and with, with the press and he also talks about his lack of relationship with Smiths fans I'll just play the first clip this is pretty good stuff
3: What is your relationship then with your adoring fans Relationship, very slim one. I don't really meet them ever, which is it really? I mean, don't, don't, don't people press you? Mm, they try to. They, they write to me. They can never really find me. I'm a very evasive person. I know Very evasive person. <laughs> and I do it quite well, and people can never really track me down. In the street, It's different because I can slide away. But in uh, Sicily Life, there was a very dry comment about how when you close the curtains at night, there's like a round of applause. Yes. Um, I mean, do people sort of sit outside? Yes, they do. And when I mentioned this, it seems as though I'm complaining, I'm bickering, I'm ungrateful, and I'm being terribly snobbish about it. But it's a very, very odd situation. To, to wake up and realize that somebody has been, been standing outside your house since 9 a.m and will stand there till 7 p.m and just stand there staring in and if you go to another window they're looking up at the other window and if you walk by the door they stare. it's very odd i'm still trying to work the whole thing out
0: <laughs> he talks about reference points. To some talks about Derek Jarman directing videos for, for the mm. band, which is he claims to have had no involvement in that at all. Which I, I you know, may be true. I, I don't know. It's not.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, he, he had. Uh, I'll just tidy up yeah, yeah, one sure. thing. Jeff didn't go to America for three months. There was uh, a problem. Financial problem within Rough Trade stim- triggered by something that happened to Rough Trade Germany, and there was a big little shake-up, and I became the production manager, right. which is just dealing with printing, printing and pressing plants, yeah. tape duplicators. All the time, Morrissey resisted videos. Right. Smith wouldn't do videos. By the time they were as successful as they became that relaxed a little and mm-hmm. they gave Derek Jarman a free hand right but it was with their blessing right. yeah. I mean it's very frustrating trying to deal with <laughs> with a char act that at that time wouldn't make a video and
0: yeah. why was it that they wouldn't make a video
1: stubbornness
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> later on in the interview he also talks about their relationship or otherwise with Top of the Pops and not, not wanting to do Top of the Pops even though they did appear on Top of the Pops sort of. Couple, good, least a few occasions. Oh,
1: several times, yeah. From from this charming man, yeah. Onwards,
0: he talks about his self-image, about his big mouth strikes again, him, and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, how he's t- talked about as the Moors murderer's pop star by the sun. <laughs> oh uh,
1: God, that was dreadful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know the sun are in pretty filthy odours right as, as we speak. Um, yes. And,
1: and, and,
0: In an unrelated thing. Um, Let's have a listen. He talks about also about what makes the Smiths special.
3: I suppose why we know that the Smiths are special is that because we scan the, the top 30, we see the Smiths, and we know that they shouldn't be there because this just does not happen a group so uh, separate actually become successful in uh, in a big way. A group having done so little in media terms. I mean, for example, the Smiths are never on top of the po- uh, television. Why should they have made it? What happened? Your face, your words, your songs, your flowers. Well, exactly. Play, but, flowers, but really, I mean, the way all the people I ever liked within recent years, within recent the recent decade, n- were never successful on a massive level. No, All the music I found precious just never made it. It didn't happen, and I got used to the fact that I was living in a world that um, wasn't really occupied by a lot of people. <laughs> so it must surprise you to see that, I mean, that fame has I'm very, I feel very proud of many things. But, sorry, go no. on and when people say, yes, but this should have really happened and you could have been really much bigger with that song. I feel that when you consider how we don't promote records and so on, the fact that the Smiths get so high on the Rough Trade label also, which a lot of people in the music industry still don't take seriously to any degree, the fact that we get so high is really quite equivalent to a group with suffocating promotion getting to number one it means the same thing really
0: so i mean he 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 obviously martin aston has been told not to discuss the band leaving rough trade and going to emi um but he does raise it what from your standpoint what was the what was going on at that
1: point? Well, EMI probably needed a band like the Smiths at the, that time. Yeah. Um, actually, because uh, what, what was happening around then, Pet Shop Boys were very important to EMI's economy right. at the time, but they weren't fantastically active. Mm-hmm. I think, they, I mean... and. EMI had big, bigger pockets than Rough Trade. Right, simple, simple as that. I think that's it. Yeah, just well, it business. The, just it, business. It was purely business, and
0: no breakdown yeah. relationship
1: necessarily with them. No, I mean the other thing, apart from resisting videos, I also resisted having management. Right. It was just so Johnny was doing a lot of the management, and it took its toll. I think must have. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, it's lunacy, doesn't yeah. To not have management. <laughs> <laughs> it, it simply <laughs> to, is.
1: Yes. And they, they just... I mean, people tried, but... Yeah. Failed to get... Yes. Yeah. And they just... A lot of people, I mean... Someone flew over from the West Coast and spent a week with them. Yeah. And went home empty-handed. <laughs> <laughs> they just resisted. Yeah having anyone to do their organisation.
0: It's extraordinary. I mean, does Morrissey still not have management or has he had management?
1: I think he's had management.
0: Right. Come and gone.
1: Uh, Yes, I think. And labels that come and go. Yes. Yes,
0: (laughs) I'd
2: be curious, from your perspective, Richard, what do you think is it that makes the Smiths inspire such devotion from their fans? And Morrissey, in fact. I mean, Morrissey (laughs) is like the, you know, Fan boards online of Morrissey are still some of the most active and rabid
1: groups. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Johnny's a great guitarist. Yes. <laughs> Morrissey was very clever. They were both very clever. And they had that right mix I don't know, of I don't know, great melodic flair
3: hmm.
1: and uh, a certain po- poignancy, a lyrical poignancy yeah. that I think. They being quite candid about adolescent emotions really touches people's. It touched their audience. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. there wasn't there wasn't much remove.
0: Yeah, yeah. I get the point she makes about the uniqueness of a band like them being as successful as, as, mm-hmm. as they were at that point. But I must say, from the outside, I could sort of see exactly why was successful it is what you, you say I mean that musically they were extraordinarily strong Johnny Murray is just a great guitar player yeah. was, interestingly that coming from Manchester because I always think that people like Vinnie Riley must have been a big big influence on him. You know, I, I could hear some mm. of that sort of th- thing going on. And as a front man, I mean, there's, there has been no-one quite like Morrissey, and it's just a great shame that he's turned out to be a, a cantankerous and fairly unpleasant man, in his, you know.
2: What's your relationship with him been like? over? Obviously, you knew him when he was just Stephen, and, and you know...
1: <laughs> well, I think it, it was kind of OK. I mean, we did... Uh, things like the sleeves... Let's talk about the sleeve design. Yes, he'd just have a photocopy and a, an idea of the colour, and we'd, I'd have to find a graphic designer until I found someone. Karen Goff. He kind of interviewed her, right? Kind of in, in, in my in my office at Rough Trade, and she was then r- rocking a kind of rockabilly look, right? Which I think he he, that, liked. he liked that. Yeah. They got on really well, so she, and she really got. A sense of what he wanted from the sleeves. Right. Which, and I was relieved because I didn't have to deal with (laughs) sorting. sorting out photocopies and oh, it was a big deal when I got him a Pantone book. Right. So he could <laughs> choose exactly the colour instead of having these yeah, yeah. vague notions of mm, that's kind of lilac. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> They're fantastic <laughs> sleeves. I mean, they really are fantastic sleeves. Memorable. Yeah.
1: But so the relationship was, I mean, we had a good working relationship. Yeah. You know, when he said... <laughs> When our daughter was born, he sent us a postcard congratulating us on the birth of our new vegetarian, which is <laughs> sadly, it was a postcard of cows, and, and uh, she's not vegetarian. Uh, <laughs> but when, he, when he, he kind of came back post it EMI with the album. He, you were the quarry on attack records, right? And he put me and, and my daughter on the, on the guest list. That was at the Albert Hall. Yeah, that was yeah. nice. And we a bit of backstage, he came up to her and said, "You're supposed to be a baby." <laughs> <laughs> she was then a teenager,
0: <laughs> eating a ham sandwich. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but
1: we, you know, we had we we had a good working relationship, and it, there was a certain amount of personal friendship. Yeah, but not a lot. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. We won't mates.
0: Well, I suspect there aren't many he's he's not a person who no. has mates.
1: As, as no. Such which is S- Stephen no mates. Stephen- <laughs> <laughs> That's what all the songs are about.
3: I was happy in the haze of a drunken hour, but heaven knows I'm miserable
0: now. I just briefly mention that the, <laughs> our featured writer is Kath Carroll. Now you knew you know knew Kath from back in
1: Yes, Kath Carroll and Liz Naylor produced a fanzine called City Fun, which was brilliant. Right. And they also had a band called The Gay Animals with Cass on guitar and Liz on keyboards. Cass started writing for the Enemy. Right. And they both moved to London. Mm Mm-hmm. Cass started a different band called Meow. Mm Mm-hmm. Liz and her sister, Pat, started doing... PR. Right. For Blast First Records. Right, okay. City Farm was just a great fan yeah, team. yeah.
0: One of the pieces we're running is our very earliest Smiths interview, headlined Crisp Songs and Salted Lyrics, as the enemy in May 1983. But you say that, you were saying before you started the podcast that she had actually written a piece on Smiths for Gay Times. I think
1: she'd written a piece for Gay Times before, before that. The, before that.
0: We'd love to lay our hands on uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. We would absolutely. <laughs> also, from 1985, she talks to Linda from Ludus, who's another person who you released um, on New Hormones and so, so on. Mm-hmm. Linda's this person who seems to like run through sort of Manchester music history as, as a sort of as a constant in a curious kind mm. of way. Tell us about her.
1: She comes from Billings. <laughs> uh. <laughs> She was at the pistols at the lesser free trade Right. Hall. Actually,
0: she actually, actually was.
1: She really I swear she was there. Yeah. And uh, that's how she met Howard. Ended up moving in with him into a house in Salford. Right. And then they split up. But stayed friendly. She did graphic design. She did the orgasmatic sleeve for Cox. Right. The first, first United Artist single. Mm-hmm. And she did lots of other work and formed a band called Ludus, which yeah. was kind of eccentric and feminist and Reikian, uh, <laughs> and didn't sell very well. But right. the, the scene in Manchester was, was really small. Everybody was present. <laughs> Just, I mean, the, yeah, the, yeah.
0: No, as you said earlier, it's a village, the village, small village. Because I mean, the last piece of cast we're running is uh, New Order, November '85. How were I mean, Joy Division, you must have been very, very aware of their emergence and so on. So, oh, yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For, 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 they used to rehearse. They were nameless. When they were nameless, mm-hmm. they rehearsed in A Room Above a Pub by Wiest Bus Depot. <laughs> and Pete Shelley and I would go and see them. Right. And then have a drink when they finished and have a chat and... Because we'd done Spiral Scratch, they, they were everybody was in awe. Yeah, yeah. It was very strange. We had uh, hired the Electric Circus to put Boscox on with Penetration. Mm-hmm. See, there was a lot... After Spiral Scratch, people started sending demo tapes to me, like,
3: mm-hmm.
1: please find enclosed, a cassette by, <laughs> the Mecons, the Gang of Four, oh, wow. Penetration, Cabaret Voltaire, all Northern. Yeah, yeah. And basically, I, was, I would be saying... Oh, we're not really a record label. (laughs) But we like what you're doing and we'll we'll give you some support slots. Or if we give you a gig in Manchester, will you get one in Leeds or Newcastle? Okay. So there was that.
0: Quid pro quo. uh, Yeah,
2: yeah. There
1: was a lot of that. They were desperate to play this gig, they had no name. Mm -hmm. And someone in my house uh, came downstairs one morning and said, my bedroom's full of stiff kittens. And her cat had miscarried oh, its God. litter. So I said, well, well, we'll bill you with stiff kittens. <laughs> and there are flyers, Postcards Penetration, stiff kittens. And, of course, they they open the evening, get on stage, and Ian says, we are Warsaw. <laughs> Fine, at least they've got a name. And then they change yeah, it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yes, I was very aware of them, and Ian's death was really quite a thing. Right. Stopped everybody in their tracks. Yeah. Everybody. Boscox had a bit of bad luck. (laughs) They signed a United Artists on the 16th of August, 1976, Mm -hmm. the day Elvis died. (laughs) (laughs) The following month, they were recording with Martin Rush in in, a studio in Barnes, just around the corner from where Mark Boland that weekend wrapped himself right. around a tree, right? Okay. <laughs> and towards the end of uh, the end of Boscot's, we're back with Martin Hannett producing at Britannia Row, I think. During those sessions, the call came from Manchester while they were recording a song called "Strange Thing." Oh, wow! Which, yeah, yeah. Which later, when they played Manchester Polly, feet dedicated to, to Ian and. The whole audience, like, sobbed basically. Extraordinary. Yeah, Extraordinary. so, uh, well, it, 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 he's not around anymore to pass on his curse. But <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. dangerous working with Pete <laughs> Shelley. Yeah, so what you're saying is you <laughs>
2: survived, basically. <laughs>
0: So you uh, eventually you, you, you left rough trade or kind of rough trade left you and left you know <coughs> ceased to exist as a as a functioning business. What yes.
1: did you do after that? My son came along and I was house husband. Right. I, I mean, I, I had been editing a magazine for rough trade called the Catalogue. A couple of people tried to revive it, but mm-hmm. it. The whole independent sector was so damaged by rough trade's collapse and then Pinnacle's collapse. Yeah.
0: They, being they, a distribution there was
1: company. another, dis- yes, a rival distribution yes. company, uh, competitor. Yeah, uh, much more functional
3: <laughs>
1: distribution company. How, but uh, the, the whole indie indi sector was really damaged. So the attempt to keep the ca- revive the catalogue failed, and our son came along, and I was just house husband, right. and I live in Stonehenge, and back then. It's changed a lot, but back then I was part of a parent-run cooperative operative Right. Founded by Angela Phillips, who our bodies ourselves a classic feminist. Right, crime, okay. Can. So I did that until my son had to study primary school, and uh, my wife said, thanks for all that. <laughs> now get a job, answer this <laughs> advert. And it was a job for librarian. In my local library, where I was for over 20 yeah. years.
0: Yeah, quite notably, uh, the, the, the rock and roll librarian. <laughs> the coolest librarian. <laughs> and <clears> you know, uh, you run the State Newington Free Festival?
1: Well, I don't run it. I'm part, part of the organisation. Yeah. yeah. It's
0: fantastic. you know retired, what, three years retired from? Five years. Five years from, from, from the library. It's been really brilliant having you on... As, as guest on this podcast. <laughs> uh, we're just going to wind up by going through some of the stuff which is going new in the library. If anything that we talk about, you know, generates any thoughts, just do do, do, do shout out. Um, well, first thing is uh, I've got it, and um, Jasper will have some stuff as well, but Melody Baker, 1966, Carl sees Sandy Bull at Les Cousins, which is a legendary folk club um, mm-hmm. in London. I'm a big Sandy Bull fan. I think he's a really, really interesting musician. Carl Dallas says, Sandy does for guitar rather what Ornette Colm has done for the jazz horn, which is one way of saying he's not too easy to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, despite a very short hearing, he emerges as a very real and significant talent. I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got an interview, uh, 73, Van Morrison, but talking about them, which is pretty interesting mm-hmm. because um, he's generally been pretty quiet about it. He says... I can tell you, I went through a hell of a lot of stuff with producers in those days, except for Burt Burns. I felt that those people who said they were producing them didn't have a clue. Between them, they didn't have a solitary idea of what we were doing. He also says, I was doing what I was doing when the Rolling Stones were still in school, maybe three years before they got together. <laughs> He's an, uh, rather like Morrissey, someone who's, despite his undoubted <laughs> talents, has turned out to be a rather unpleasant person. Yes. We got uh, Bill Payne, Little Feet, in talking to Harry Doherty in Melody Maker 77, it really points to what went wrong with Little Feet. It says, I've always thought the advance we have over Herbie Hancock, Chick Corea, Weather Report, etc., is ultimately our ability to put vocals and stuff over our music and still be able to get away with a little bit of what they're doing. Not a lot, though. Those guys are in a <laughs> bag by themselves. Well, I mean, it's Bill Payne turning, trying to turn Little Feet into a jazz, jazz fusion act, which is the worst
3: yes,
1: thing, <laughs> <laughs> worst
0: thing that ever happened. <laughs> Marv's and Batty Silver Patterson into Yaz from 1989. And she just talks kind of new age drivel. There's a really great bit in here about looking in the mirror and saying, "I love you. I love you for what you are right now." Now, every morning, go into the bathroom, look in the mirror, and say, "I love you," and I mean it. I feel great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that was ahead of, uh, She was ahead of her time.
0: <laughs> she's, well, she's actually went to my school. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, she's a Holland Park girl. <laughs> lastly, the Spice Girls. It's a really fabulous, big feature by Chris Heath the Face in 1997. Mm. And, first of all, baby spices. We had this big interview and I didn't say anything. I didn't even talk. And there was a picture of me outside number 10 Downing Street. I don't think I'll vote. Am I allowed to say that? Do I think Margaret Thatcher's the original Spice Girl? Not particularly. My mum is. <laughs> Meanwhile (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile, Jerry says It was my quote that Margaret Thatcher was a Spice Girl She was the first advocate of girl power Of course she destroyed a lot of things Everyone makes mistakes and she did She fucked up big time loads of different things Definitely What I give her credit for is she's the first fucking woman It said in the paper she sent me a Christmas card It's still stuck in the post
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's great Uh, That's super What do the Spice Girls mean to you, Richard?
1: <laughs> <laughs> not as much as Wham.
2: Not as much as Wham. No,
0: have, have you seen the
2: documentary? I haven't
1: seen the documentary. I'm really looking forward it's, to it's, it. it.
0: It's really good. And uh, what's interesting is... I, mean, I know that Andrew Ridgeley was involved in the making of it. But he doesn't... And so he could be accused of being too good and kind to himself, in a way. But it's mm. not true, because actually he was always incredibly respectful of George, George mm. Michael's subsequent success. And actually, Andrew has, I think, come out as a really decent man in many ways. You know, he, he's, he enjoys the fact he made lots of money as a pop star, and nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah, it's a really, good, it's a, re- it's a really good
1: documentary. Right. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah.
0: yeah.
2: I'll mention three things. First of which is a Pete Rugolo obituary by Richard Williams in The Guardian when he died in, in October 2011. Which is interesting because he, he was an arranger. He was an arranger for Stan Kenton band. He, you know, he did a lot of stuff mm-hmm. for films. And Richard Williams says, In the days when virtual wars were waged over the direction of jazz, the composer and arranger Pete Rugolo was stationed just behind the front line. Rugolo who has died aged 95, collaborated closely with the band leader Stan Kenton in the immediate post-war era, a time when classical influences were beginning to infiltrate certain elements of the music, dividing players and listeners into opposing camps. Kenton's progressive jazz, with its bold, brassy dissonances and air of pomposity, became the focal point of a long-running dispute, and some of Ruggalo's scores are among the most controversial. It's interesting, and it's interesting, that it's an obituary, but it does go through that right. sort of period mm-hmm. in history. So it's... It's worth it if you if you want to kind of get a, an overview of that of that time in jazz's history, then next up is a piece a piece about Chuck Berry by Karen Rose for m t v in twenty seventeen The complicated Truth about Chuck Berry: how I figured out a way to love his music in spite of his often unsavory story <laughs>
0: another one yeah. you know. It,
2: and it's and it's kind of it's it's an interesting thing because it's one grapples with many people. One might grapple with Morrissey. How does one love love the music of the Smiths? If you know, given all the things he said subsequently, it's a it's a question and it's a question with regards to many musicians. But she concludes: Chuck Berry wrote amazing songs. Chuck Berry's work was exploited by the music industry. Chuck Berry never made all the money he deserved from the music he created. Chuck Berry was a victim of racism, and Chuck Berry took advantage of women repeatedly throughout his life. All of the above is true, but after he died, I still spent Sunday listening to as much of his music as possible, and I'll always remember his role in my music education. May all of Chuck Berry be remembered well and accurately, and may he rest in peace. Which is, I think, interesting because it, it can be difficult as a listener. How do we cope with music that we love being made by people that we don't? And sometimes it's problematic because if you say, "Well, I'm going to listen to it anyway," what you're saying is that I, I value my own desire to listen to it more than I value, you know, yeah. what it mm. what, what that person has done badly to people. The
0: one thing I'd say is we simply don't know the grim history of artists in the past because it wasn't noted, wasn't nope. reported, and so on and so forth. That. If we knew every detail of, let's say, the likes of Beethoven and Mozart's life, <laughs> one of these people almost certainly turned out to be a, an absolute creep of some yeah. description. I understand the difficulty, but, you know, I will still keep listening to off-the-wall
1: you
0: know, thriller. Sure. Basically. You know, you have to separate the art from person, I think.
1: Yeah, same with Picasso.
0: Yeah, exactly. You it's, know, it's a it's,
1: difficult
2: it's, thing. I think it's something that every, every listener, every viewer of art has to find a way through in some
0: respect uh, I, I, I don't think it need be such a struggle mm. actually you know that I think that you know we have to just take the art for for what it is um, I don't know
2: it's interesting when it's when it's someone who's dead and can no longer profit from it is one thing and when it's someone who's alive and can still profit from it I think maybe it's another thing I don't know mm. in any case it's, it's an ongoing discussion <laughs> and we, we'll, we'll, we'll you continue know, to, to we'll have <laughs> you know, it I just think it's interesting so I thought that was an interesting piece on that front and lastly I wanted yeah. to mention uh, Lewis Capaldi interview Lisa Verico in the Sunday Times <laughs> and the the headline of which is I didn't expect my life to be so sad <laughs> um, which actually is not really the tone of the piece. But it is interesting. In this mm-hmm. soul-bearing interview, the superstar next door reveals why his fragile mental health may force him to quit. And Luis Capaldi is an interesting character. I can't say that I'm overly enamoured of his music. I don't, don't particularly listen to him. But he comes over really well in interview. He comes over as a very sensitive individual. He's just had this Netflix documentary made about him and all this stuff. And he's, he's funny in this as well. Even Capaldi, who is said to have made a seven-figure sum from the Netflix deal, was shocked when he saw the finished film. ''I never knew I was so deep and emotionally intelligent,'' he (laughs) half-jokes. ''It is a sad watch. I didn't expect my life to be so sad. ''Still, he's hugely proud of it. ''I love that it isn't grandiose,'' he says. ''It feels small and granular. ''You sense the filmmakers are properly living in my back pocket,'' which they were. ''They did a fantastic job.'' Then he goes on later to say about his second album, which has come out and has been hugely successful... What I was secretly hoping to do was to make the same album as my debut, because that did so well. capaldi says but you get a bit bored then some swedes turn up with a synth part and you think hey that could be fun <laughs> the next thing you know someone's playing guitar like prince the song he's referring to is leave me slowly that begins a bit hauler notes has a dramatic drum break and soars on a solo that recalls purple rain i didn't set out to write that sort of song but here i am <laughs> in not trying to take great strides on this album a few great strides mm. have been taken i just i just think he, you know he's he's an interesting Very guy good. and I, I hope that he Gets to continue making music despite, you know, well-publicised struggle with Tourette's yeah. that forced him off stage at Glastonbury. And that's is- right. I think. No, so, that, that's you know, we'll thing. see. But he, you know, comes over a funny, sensitive, interesting guy.
0: And on a happy note, we'll end this podcast. Rich thank you so much for coming in. It's been fascinating. We, I think we could have talked for another hour easily. You know, um, and and McCluck got to mention every single musician who's ever emotional yeah, Oh god, in the
1: god. Of- we forgot Marky Smith. <laughs> 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 Oh, and Tony Wills. We forgot Tony. Yeah, yeah. he'll be furious. Yeah, no, <laughs> I
0: mean, it, 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 I mean, it's just just so much. I mean, it, it, it's it's extraordinary. Who's our next podcast guest? Jim, po- Farber. Jim Farber. That'll be a oh, that's fantastic, marvelous Jim Farber. That'll be a, a Zoom podcast, I guess, because he'll be phoning from New York. Yes, yeah, Richard. Many thanks for coming in. Rocksback Pages, if you want to read 50,000 articles from the 1950s to the present day on you know, on, on popular music, <laughs> subscribe to Rocksback Pages. Get your library to subscribe to Rocksback Pages. Maybe Stoke Newton Library should subscribe to Rocksback Pages. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll have a word. Uh, That's uh, yeah. good. <laughs> and thanks anyway, very so, much.
0: So on that note, goodbye. 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 Bye.
3: Just one more
2: That concludes episode 156 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Richard Boone. The host was Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Stay for a
0: while, just one more moment,
3: before we say goodbye.